Adam's Deep Sleep, Part 3, The Inexhaustible Word. Opening quote from Canticle of Canticles, Chapter 5. I sleep, yet my heart watches. Close quote. What is God communicating to us through all these prefigurations of Jesus' passion? First, that the cross is central to human history. And second, that the cross is central to our own individual lives, vital for our salvation. If we take the time to meditate upon his word and see that this is so, then reality is transformed for us, dark into light, bitter into sweet, uncertainty into invincible confidence. To the first point, the details in a given prefiguration may be fascinating and surely important in demonstrating God's meticulous concentration on the humblest realities. The variations between the prefigurations make them a delight to discover and ponder. But it is the message of the emergent whole which is most crucial. The bare fact that the cross has been announced through events in each millennium of human existence prior to the crucifixion, coupled with the fact that these events have been recorded and preserved for us in a unique book, the Bible, so that everyone can be aware of them, ought to convince us that Jesus Christ is the most important person in history. No one else has the treatment he receives, being heralded in detail from the beginning until his advent. What was most often announced about him was his death, yet invariably with his resurrection, that in him life comes from death. This God wants to communicate. Mighty empires came and went to serve God's purpose with Israel, and Israel came and went to serve God's purpose with Christ. Now Israel is returned, doubtless to herald, nolens volens, somehow Christ again. For as Jesus' passion had been anticipated through all history before it happened, so it has never been forgotten since, but is remembered daily by millions of souls, especially in the memorial Jesus made for it, Holy Mass. Therefore, we can truly say that the cross stands at the centre of history. Not, that is, as a mathematical median, but as the goal of history prior to it, the source of history after, and also the ultimate goal the crucifixion itself being a prefiguration of what will come to the church. Quote, the things that were first, behold, they have arrived, and I also announce what is new. Before these things arise, I will cause you to hear about them. Close quote. Inevitably, we are involved in this. Even if we have made no overarching study to perceive that the cross stands at the centre of world events, it may well be that we have perceived the truth of the cross in our own experiences. What we once thought was a personal disaster 
turns out to be an ineffable blessing. Trials which were dark and almost unbearable to endure are later seen to have been the most rewarding episodes of our lives. If we have puzzled over the meaning of existence, if we have wondered what the world is coming to, and if our own efforts at understanding simply fail, plus those of all the philosophers and leaders we have consulted or followed, then we are primed to commiserate with St. John when he caught sight of the Book of Life in a vision. No one was able, neither in heaven nor upon earth nor under the earth, to open the book nor to gaze upon it. He wept greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book nor to see it. But one of the elders then said, Weep not, Behold, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the book and to break its seven seals. St. John then saw in the midst of the throne a lamb was standing as if it were slain, who went on to open the book. The lamb is evidently Jesus Christ, slain and yet standing, killed and yet resurrected. He is the Lion of Judah and the Root of David, Old Testament allusions to Christ in addition to the Lamb. Jesus Christ crucified and nobody else makes sense of the whole Bible, all history and likewise of each human life. Again, God desires to communicate this to us so that we are not left in darkness. The word for the Lamb opening the book and Jesus opening the minds of his apostles in regard to the Old Testament scriptures is the same as for the opening of his sacred heart on the cross. Truly in him are all mysteries contained and revealed. Jesus' sacred heart, his love, is our source of life as members of his only beloved church as Eve from Adam, as saints, saved as animals from the ark, born and matured in the sacred humanity of Christ, by the sacraments, to know God intimately, which is wisdom, in the sea of eternity, carried there by the river of life. The truths of the cross transform our perception of reality. Is death to be feared? How can we fear it when there awaits on the other side an awakening infinitely more joyful than Adam's when he first laid eyes on Eve? Is life senseless? Take heart from Noah, through whom God arranged the course of nations, even as he lay naked and dead drunk. Shall darkness be a matter for dread, or our intellectual ignorance, when Abraham attests that the undying fire and light are found within it? What of non-Catholics? Abimelech followed the natural law, and for that God redeemed him from death. A rock in the desert which Jacob used as a pillow turns out to be the gateway to heaven. So should we understand every consecrated altar 
when we come before it, there to dream of the cross. That place where we all but lost our life, ask Isaac, is the same place as sweet love and the promise of new life. This whole work is not too hard for us, for Ruth, that is Mary, comes to our aid in every necessity. Even if the whole tide of battle turns against us, the war cannot be lost, for Moses, that is Christ, is watching over the whole theatre and upholding all, while Joshua, our general, that is Christ, is fighting invincibly among us. When the wicked capture and enslave their victims, torture them and scoff in celebration, know that Samson, that is Christ crucified, will bring their temple down on their heads. Even if you sink into what seems like hell, believe Jonah that God wills to raise you once again to dry land and that his purpose in you will not fail. Do we see other men as our enemies? We may persecute them like Saul and die or have mercy on them like David and be crowned. Would anyone say reverence for the Holy Eucharist is a small matter when Joseph, that is Christ, revealed to the butler and baker that it is life and death? If witnessing to Christ provokes the ferocity of the world against us, does that mean we have made a mistake? God showed Elijah it was not so, even giving him supernatural food to continue. Life cannot be grasped on our terms, but only received on God's. Such is the miserable lesson from Lot's daughters. Time will run out. God's patience will end. Ezekiel has shown us. There remain many sleeps to be explored. Though we might grow tired, truly the word of God is inexhaustible. Samuel needed three sleeps before he understood God's message, illustrating that divine revelation is multi-staged, coming to us in the book of nature, then through the Torah, and finally in the Logos assuming flesh. Daniel was seized by revelatory visions, falling into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, the same sleep in Hebrew, Radam, as Jonah, who then faced three days in the sub-aquatic tomb. Another prophet, Jeremiah, after announcing the incarnation, speaks of awaking from sweet sleep to introduce the new covenant. He was personally put into the filthy pit, like Hades, by the leaders of Jerusalem, spending days there in darkness, but finally resurrected. The same king, signifying God, who permitted him to be sunk, also ordered him to be rescued. Jacob's wife, Lee, older and blear-eyed in contrast to her beautiful young sister, Rachel, played a trick which backfired. By her own scheming, Lee's sleep with Jacob was less fruitful than Rachel's, 
So the blessing of the father went from the elder to the younger. In like manner, the temple gave way to the church. Skipping over Jacob's vision of the ladder, in another dream he is assured of the inevitable fruitfulness and security of the Holy Spirit. Later, in a revival of spirit, as if from a deep sleep, or stunned numbness and shock, we see in Jacob's waking the shared life of father and son, as his life is bound up in the lad's life. Jacob's final sleep promises resurrection with the saints. I sleep, yet my heart watches, sings the bride, indicating love is strong as death, jealousy as hard as hell. For even in Jesus' death, his heart watches, rescuing his future bride, his divine jealousy a rage overcoming his rival. In contrast to this, Solomon observes that a worldly, distracted life, one without sleep, is empty, like one who flees the cross. If, after so many sleeps, one is convinced that the passion of Christ is prefigured through the Old Testament, then further types for the sacrifice of Calvary are found to abound. Jesus himself said, quote, And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, so also must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Close quote. Therefore, Moses holding up the bronze serpent in the desert is infallibly a prefiguration of Calvary. Those who faced death from the fiery serpents needed only to look upon the serpent's image held up by Moses to be saved. How can this signify the cross? Because it is sin which stings us and brings death. And if we raise our eyes to Christ on the cross, there are two things we may see there. The eyes of the body see agony, blood and death, and we must confess that it is our sins that nailed Jesus there, our sins that crucified him. Yet the eyes of the mind perceive self-sacrifice and the mildness of mercy, and the heart knows love and redemption. The cross is darkness and light simultaneously. So while Jesus carried our sins in his body, it was sin which was defeated on the cross. Jesus rose. The serpent was crucified forever. This we should see on Calvary, as well as in the image Moses made of it beforehand, and in the memorial Jesus bequeathed of it forever. Holy Mass. Jonathan prefigured the crucifixion by gorging on honey. We remember honey signifies wisdom, yet we can only take it in measure. Jonathan was so replete with it that his eyes and his whole face shone. The brief account contains in five verses the themes of father and son, of kingship, of a sign for the removal of iniquity from Israel, of Lot's cast, 
of the son condemned for being filled with wisdom, honey, his taking the wood in his hand and his being willing to die and yet escaping from death to the great joy of the people. David went into hiding for two or three days in the field as Jesus in the tomb after a death sentence from Saul, that is, the authorities. But Jonathan, son of the king, comes to communicate with his dear David in a manner mysterious which none but they understand. And David rose up from his place. David and Jonathan are united like the humanity and divinity of Christ. May the Lord be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring even forever. Later, David slept chastely with a beautiful virgin, Abishag, before finally he closed his eyes for the last time. So Christ's last sleep meant his spiritual union with his bride, the church. Absalom, son of David, rode on a mule, hung from a tree, and was pierced with a spear, with the result that countless Israeli lives were spared. How did such a soldier make such an error to ride into a tree? Perhaps he did not see it. Perhaps weary from battle his eyes were closed. Perhaps he was sleeping. It would fit with the pattern above. The plenitude of pain expressed in David's repetitious mourning for Absalom shows the father not indifferent to his son, albeit impassable in heaven. Beni Absalom, beni, beni Absalom, mi ye ten muti ani tichtika, Absalom, beni, beni. My son Absalom, Absalom my son, who can grant to me that I may die on your behalf? Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom. In the examples given so far, most involve a person prefiguring Christ, but there are also all those paschal lambs, the scapegoats, the bulls, sheep, and daily lambs and doves. Or, if one were to try to enumerate all the mentions in sacred scripture where wood prefigures the cross, or bread and wine the Holy Eucharist, or blood and altars the scene of Calvary, or the high priest and sanctuary the mystical purpose, there would literally be hundreds of examples. There are so many words in the Bible which anticipate the crucifixion that if the explorations and meditations on each of these were written down, the world itself, I suppose, would not be able to contain the books that would be written. Indeed, the whole world ceaselessly declares the same truths. To see any tree or piece of wood, to glance at any drop of wine or loaf of bread, any grape or grain of fruit or seed is to be reminded of God's plan for our redemption through the crucifixion. Our Saviour taught, quote, 
Amen, Amen, I say to you, unless the grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it yields much fruit. Whoever loves his life will lose it, and whoever hates his life in this world preserves it unto eternal life. Close quote. Every grain of wheat preaches Christ's sacrifice of Calvary. So does every sleep. The whole land sleeps in winter so it can awake with spring. The moon wanes into darkness so it can wax again bright. The sun sets so it may rise. Annually, monthly, daily, we are invited to experience the central truth of creation. God made sleep to teach us of the passion, to show us not to fear death, to confirm our belief in the resurrection. If everywhere nature declares the gospel, how much more every page of the Old Testament? God wrote both. The world accounts this madness, but the folly of God is wiser than the wisdom of this world. Quote, I stand unto this day, witnessing to both small and great, saying no other thing than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come to pass, that Christ should suffer, and that he should be the first that should rise from the dead, and should show light to the people and to the Gentiles. As he spoke these things, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, thou art beside thyself, much learning doth make thee mad. And Paul said, I am not mad, most excellent Festus, but I speak words of truth and soberness. Close quote. Apparent madness turns out to be truth. The goodness of the cross is so contrary to appearances, the good operation of the cross so unexpected, that our hearts must be reduced of all self-sufficiency to accept it. When Jesus told his apostles of his passion in advance, they were not enthused. They could not grasp it. They even rebuked him. When it finally came, they fled. It seemed senseless to stay. Afterwards, on Pentecost, the apostles preached the truth of the cross to the world gathered in Jerusalem and were deemed drunk. Of primary interest here is not the world's lack of understanding before, during and after the crucifixion, but that in the Gospels we read of the crucifixion first before it happened, then its operation revealed while it was happening, and then it being recalled by the evangelists afterward. This is a marvellous snapshot of all reality. Calvary was announced from the beginning of history and will be remembered to the end, because it is the central event, the most important Jesus was prefigured in the murdered prophets and then imitated after in murdered martyrs. These are the lives that shape history most profoundly because they are closest to the cross. 
Another way to take all of this in is to consider the problem of the one and the many. Some ancient philosophers argued that all being is one. Opposing this, others taught that reality is an irreducible multitude, that being is necessarily many. Aristotle gave a solution so elegant it shines with truth. Transcendent being is one, and it is through participation in the one that being is enjoyed by the many, each in their multifarious ways. Applying this solution in the light of revelation, we say God alone is self-subsistent being, but through his Son, the Word, O Logos, innumerable creatures come into existence. Highest among all these creatures are persons, countless of whom come to eternal life with God through Jesus Christ, by way of his death and resurrection. Jesus' passion is the key to reality because it provides the highest solution to the problem of the one and the many. His saints participate in him. They live in him because he lives in them. We may be impressed to see how Christ influenced the lives of St. Stephen or St. Therese of Avila or St. Thomas More. But there is a danger we misunderstand, thinking this is merely extrinsic, as if the main agent were the particular saint. Prefigurations diffuse this misunderstanding because once we see that Jesus' passion really was the cause of the histories of Jonah and Abraham and Noah and Adam, then immediately we confess these are divine workings of God who alone can transcend all time. If we admit two or three prefigurations, we might still claim it is a coincidence. But when we see a dozen or a score or finally lose count, there is no room left for doubt that God himself planted the cross to reach all his children. A further difference between the saints before Christ and those after him is to emphasize God's work in our salvation and our cooperation respectively. All the saints since Christ shine with holiness, with moral goodness. There is no doubt that they strained their wills to conform themselves to Christ. Always, their salvation is first a gift of God, but they make clear that we are meant to merit it too. The Old Testament prefigurations, on the other hand, emphasize not our efforts, but God's election. It is true that some of them were moral beacons. Joseph, Moses and Elijah come to mind. But their showing forth the cross in the cases studied above was much more a matter of election than merit. The point is clearer still with Jacob, Samson and Jonah. I have no doubt that they were each exceedingly holy, but that is not immediately conveyed by the scriptures. Rather, the Bible shows God chose to act through them, and that is why we know them at all. Adam and Boaz, 
in their prefigurations at least, did little more noble than fall asleep. And yet who can deny their greatness in Christ? It is good for us to be reminded that closeness to God is first of all a matter of his election and secondarily of our wholehearted response. When we glimpse how Christ gives eternal sense to the lives of Old Testament figures, persons whose lives had previously been, to put it gently, a puzzle to us, then this reverberates to the glory of God. We see how their many lives are elevated, which in turn abounds to the glory of God. And as our esteem for Christ increases, then the light he throws out becomes brighter, making sense, in our understanding, of even more lives than before. There is a resonance from glory unto glory. Typology, wherein figures from the past are fulfilled in what comes later, does not demean type or archetype, but elevates both, conserving the distinct identity of persons, but manifesting an ever greater unity the more members it draws into a more perfectly perceived one. Or how else shall we know God except through the Son, through Jesus Christ? And how shall we increase in knowledge of him without increasing in knowledge of his saints? The more we know of the more of them and love what we know, the better we know and love Christ. This is the process by which we get to know anything high. Aristotle said it was difficult to define the soul, for one was not sure whether to start by defining the essence and then study her attributes, or start with her attributes in order to discern her essence. The difficulty is that being invisible, we cannot simply start with the essence of the soul, because we do not at first know what she is. Yet it is also difficult to start with the attributes, because if we do not know what she is, how do we know which attributes belong to the soul and which do not? Aristotle's answer was to shuttle between the two. One notices certain attributes and ventures a primitive definition. From here, one can test more attributes which should help in refining the definition. Finally, one hopes to come up with a precise answer. In De Anima, the soul is the first actuality of a natural body that has life potentially. If that definition is obscure to us, so is Jesus Christ when we first hear of him. But by going from him to his best works, that is, his saints, and returning from them to him, we enter a reverberation whereby Christ is apprehended as drawing in literally all who are saved, who respond to him, who love. Every act of love in the whole history of the planet finds its source and end in Jesus Christ. He is the most significant answer to the problem of the one and the many. Jesus is the one. We are the many.
we go back to the one, but this time with billions of participants in him. Their lives are raised by his, they are covered in his glory, and he rises thereby higher in our understanding, higher than we ever imagined before. Prefigurations have a special role because of their undeniably divine character. The accumulation of such cases attests that truly his sacrifice stands in the centre of each human life. Finding the passion of Christ in the Old Testament corroborates our faith and gives us inspiration in our trials. It serves our salvation and gives glory to God. The darkest event to have ever occurred on this planet is, in fact, the most blessed.